Welcome to Sourcing Journal Radio, our weekly check-in with apparel insiders and thought leaders, which spotlights a variety of topics currently driving change in the market. I am Edward Hertzman, founder and president of Sourcing Journal. On today's episode, we will be separating what we think we know from what we really know about sustainability. While the industry is paying more attention to its effect on the planet and its people, the truth is the length and complexity of our supply chain makes transparency, let alone traceability, difficult. First, we have David Greenstein, CEO of Hema Sinka America, one of the largest wholesalers of home textiles in the United States. David oversees the Calvin Klein, Kate Spade, Barber Barry brands, and introduced the world's first fully traceable cotton under the brands Pimacot and Homegrown. Additionally, we have Andrew Ola, founder of the Kingpins Denim Trade Shows, which celebrate the heritage and community of this category. Andrew has also launched Transformers, a series of summits focused helping the market become more environmentally responsible. David, Andrew, thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure. It's our pleasure. Um, so, David, let's, uh, let's start with you. Uh, sustainability is on everyone's lips these days, and many companies have sustainability initiatives and goals, but it's something the industry is grappling with. What are the common misconceptions uh, when it comes to sustainability? So I certainly agree with you that uh, sustainability is um, a call sign for most companies today. Uh, don't think there are many companies uh, that I've seen out there, either the retailers, brands, manufacturers, or wholesalers, uh, that um, don't have some sort of sustainability um, consciousness, uh, whether they think that uh, uh, it's important for them or uh, to do in the future, or whether it's an important, or whether they're already uh, grappling with it r- uh, right now. So that's definitely a given. Uh, I find that the big problem is um, that there is an execution gap. Um, as you mentioned in your intro, the uh, the gap between wanting to do something and actually getting to do something uh, is, is, is really enormous. And so I think the, the, the largest misconception at the moment is that companies out there that you think are doing something special are actually, when it comes down to brass tacks, um, uh, missing the mark uh, and, and to various degrees. Um, sometimes um, they, they have instituted uh, good protocols internally, spoken to their investors about it, um, made uh, large claims about a year in the future when they're going to do this or that. Um, but when it really comes down to the engine room uh, where things are actually happening on a day-to-day basis, I think that's where you find that there is a gap between what they're saying and what they can actually execute or what they prepare to execute. Mm-hmm. So, Andrew, you're in the denim space and sustainability is something you're passionate about. What are the biggest, biggest hurdles for denim mills and brands that want to be more sustainable? Well, I think the biggest hurdle is the customers are the biggest hurdle um, because so many of the customers greet, we don't want to greenwash and they don't really care about, about, um, about what's involved in sustainability and they're more interested in price and quick delivery. Um, there's other hurdles at the mill level and those hurdles would probably be know-how and, and actually comprehension because a lot of the mills in the developing nations don't really understand sustainability and often they might mix it up with some sort of a marketing um, mantra. 
So it's something which I think is a little bit more complex than that and it takes time for everyone to actually get their arms around it. Do, do you see a shift, though, in the, in the consumers and brands willing to pay a little bit more or understand the process or be willing to learn the process? Or they just want it at, at any cost? I think, the, I think the general sentiment is that being sustainable shouldn't cost any more. I, I don't think sustainability is a, is a methodology for making more money. Um, so, David, um, you really can't be sustainable, right, without traceability, where most brands and retailers today, when it comes to having insight into the materials and processes they use for their products, are there certain on, on tier one, what about certain on uh, tier two and beyond? You know, how are they tracing their supply chain to ensure that it is, in fact, sustainable? Um, good question, um, Eddie. Thanks for that question. I, I can tell you, actually, when I look at the hierarchy of the responsibility, let's start off by saying a company wants to do something. I would say the first tier is that company needs to be transparent. Uh, you know, the, the, the first tier is, is this company transparent? Is it prepared to be honest? Is it prepared to be open? Uh, is it prepared to um, uh, do the needful uh, conceptually uh, in governance? Uh, then comes this idea of traceability. So, and we obviously um, are true believers in that if you're going to make a sustainable claim, sustainability is normally regional. It's uh, something that's happening at a place at a time. And therefore, if you want to claim something about a practice, a sustainable practice that's happening at a certain geography at a certain time, you've got to be able to trace the product back to that geography at that time and make sure the contents of the product are, are what they purport to be. Uh, there's a third level, actually, uh, beyond traceability, which is verified traceability. And, and this is really a whole nother, because we, we, we see, uh, quite frankly now, quite a lot of companies claiming to have traceability. I'll give you an excellent example. There's a an ad out at the moment from IBM um, showing a traceability through blockchain um, of, of a coffee bean from an African farm to a, uh, a barista in, in some urban area. It's a really effective ad. But how much of the information that's going into this IBM cloud blockchain is actually verified information? So if the world would start looking at this idea of being transparent, being traceable, and then making sure you could verify your traceable claim, I think that uh, we'd start getting to be able to make sustainable sustainability claims. So um, this next question I really like to, to ask both David and Andrew. Um, sustainability is, is often framed in terms of its impact on the planet. But to what degree is sustainability also good for business in helping companies achieve benefits for the triple bottom line, you know, social, environmental, and financial? I think you alluded a little bit to this, Andrew, about how sustainability doesn't necessarily have to be more expensive. And we've had other guests on the podcast that have actually said implementing a sustainable supply chain, in fact, has a not only a environmental benefit, but actually has a financial benefit. Uh, over time, while there's an upfront uh, investment that has to be made, that they're actually able to save money over time by truly being uh, sustainable in their supply chain practices. So let's start with you first, David. What's your thoughts on this? And let's then move to Andrew and hear what he has to say. 
Well, you know, we're all the glowing example of um, driving financial benefits to ourselves, our shareholders, our partners, our retailers, uh, our farmers, our manufacturing base, uh, while doing a, a socially responsible and environmentally uh, smart um, endeavor. And the reason I think that that's happened with us is that because we didn't look at this as much as what is the price of doing something today, which is the myopic short-term uh, view, uh, which normally is the barrier of entry for most companies. We looked at it from a point of view of what value will this bring us and the planet in the long run. And if people would start to ask the question about value rather than the question about price, I think that uh, this is a very easy discussion to have. Um, to give you an example of value that we drove specifically here at Himatsinka, so obviously we, as you mentioned in your intro, uh, we've been responsible for the first fully DNA tagged and tracked and traced cotton. Because uh, we did that, the value it brought us was a direct contact with farmers. Um, you know, people ask me, how much does tagging cost? I ask, how much does cotton cost? Uh, when you're actually negotiating directly with a farmer, you can take a little bit of the sting out of the market uh, by giving a farm a fair return over long periods of time. Uh, that was one way for us to get really efficient uh, on, on price of cotton. Um, the second thing is uh, we, we increased our total capacities. We filled those capacities because we could tell a story uh, through certain retailers uh, on our ingredient. Uh, this, in turn, brought us... Um, uh, viability in scale uh, as far as profitability is concerned. Uh, this uh, brought us, uh, I think we're in our eighth queue as a public company of queue um, uh, on queue um, uh, increases both in top line and bottom line, which has brought the necessary accretion in market cap. So uh, we're a, a great live example that if you look past the initial investment, and look at the value that these type of efforts can drive for your company. Uh, we're we're a great uh, a great example of the financial value. There is also, of course, other values. I just like to mention them very quickly. The one value is the value of sleeping at night. Like if you're going to make a claim that this cotton is X or this sustainability claim, um, you're always susceptible to somebody coming and saying, "Well, that's not true," or "How do you know?" Um, so this ability for us to defend our claim and sleep at night uh, has brought an incredible value. And the last value that it brings us, um, which I cannot compute in dollars and cents, but I know it's happening, is it gives us the confidence to tell a story to a consumer that's more and more interested in understanding the source of stuff and understanding where stuff comes from and what are the sustainability practices of that geography. That confidence to tell a story brings a lot of clarity to our claim, brings a lot, a lot of clarity to our purpose, and allows us to start to engage on a B2C basis, uh, which many, many companies out there at the moment are scared, or their legal departments are telling them, do not go there. So, Andrew, what's, you know, what's your thought process on this triple bottom line, social, environmental, and, and financial? You know, to what degree is sustainability also good for business and helping companies you know, achieve, uh, uh, you know, this triple bottom line goal? I don't think it's that complicated. 
I think you either as a company have values or you don't, or you don't with regards to the environment. And if you do, then this is the only road you have to take, regardless of whether it's profitable or not profitable. You have no choice. Patagonia has been doing this kind of thing. They used organic cotton because they thought it was the right thing to do since 1995. Organic cotton costs more. Their shirt prices went up and they sold more. So I'm not really sure this has to do with companies making a decision only about the bottom line. I think it has to do with decision-making about what's right for them. And then the other side of it is is, is the execution of it. Um, I have friends that have gone solar and they have paybacks on their solar factories in three years. I mean, there's all sorts of examples of paybacks on reusing your water on all the different things, but that's another story. And I'm not the competent person to answer that question. I think I think that is along the lines of what we're what we're indicating here is that there there's been several executives that we've spoken to that have said that yes there is there is an ethos and a a moral obligation and a brand DNA that a lot of these companies like Patagonia embrace it's part of their mantra it's part of their supply chain it's part of their brand it's part of why the consumers buy into it but there also is a, a definite ROI. Like you said, whether it's solar panel panel or you know water treatment facility plants, that over time, the investment actually starts to yield uh, a more profitable supply chain. There's a lot. There's a lot of data that shows that if you reuse use renewable energy, if you can actually recycle your water fully, that you can have a lot of savings. But I'm not sure. That, I'm not sure. I believe that data, or I don't believe it. It's just people talking about it. It's not audited. It's not. I mean, it's just people saying that. I don't know. So you, you made a good point about Patagonia, and then there's companies like Everlane who have loyal followings, largely based on their responsible practices. To what degree do you think this is an indication that consumers care about sustainability? Do their fans just represent a niche market, or is this you know a bigger trend that you see really you know scaling across the marketplace? Well, actually, I see it as um, as a generational thing. Like Eileen Fisher has been into this and Nike's been into this and Patagonia has been into it. Everybody at different levels, REI. Lots of companies have got involved in the environment for a long, long time. But those are those companies are basically aiming and hitting baby boomers and Generation X. I think what we're seeing is um, Everlane is a perfect example, is aiming and hitting, you know, the millennials. And the millennials, there's so much data on the millennials and their interest in data. So if you have a group of people that are it's the largest generation in history, I think there's 79 million millennials. If these people love companies that are open and provide data that's believable, they're going to definitely be interested in those companies and they're going to really notice the companies that aren't. And that's, that's one of the costs of, of um, like the kind of cost of not being sustainable is what is the cost of, of not doing this? Nobody can record that, but if, if a millennial can go online and see everything they want to see about Everlane and their jeans, why would they want to buy from another brand that doesn't say anything? What is that? Co- what is that cost? But it also puts you know it also puts a lot of pressure on them, and it also puts a lot of pl- pressure on the supplier because it's fully transparent, and it's it's a big obligation. And I think you know Everlane is a great example of of a brand that stepped up to the table and put it all out there, and um, you know their success is quite el- uh, you know evident. Um, but, you know, at, at your recent trade show, you know, I went to um, the one in both Amsterdam and New York, and uh, it seems that all the mills today, or not all, but a lot of the mills today are really trying to pivot towards sustainability. And, and do you see them um, 
being able to handle the demands of brands like in Everlane and Patagonia? Do you think that it's easy for them to shift to a truly sustainable supply chain? Well, Everlane and Patagonia are, are tiny in the big scheme of things. I think there's, what, 2 billion genes produced a year, and I don't think they use more than 600,000. So I think it's, it's not a question of capacity at this particular time. It's a question of mentality. Companies who are providers of denim and providers of garments, they need to understand what's involved in their setups to satisfy the future demand that's coming. So, you know, do you think this, uh, they're, they're, the majority of this is greenwashing or the, the majority of this is really factories and mills really trying to make a change in how they operate their business? I think if you go to people like Sustainable Apparel Coalition, and I don't have their data, but if they do you know, audits on companies, they'll find a lot of companies fail. And, but that doesn't mean that they're going to fail a future audit. So what, usually when they fail, they ask what they need to do to pass. And more and more companies are, are, are in that kind of mode. So you've got tons and tons of companies that are maybe not meeting the standards that they're going to be at in two years now, but they understand what they need to do. Yeah, it seems like it's going back, you know, five, six years with compliance and corrective action plans, you know. Exactly. It's not a, an all or nothing thing. It's, it's, a, it's a work in progress. It reminds me of the organic. When organic cotton started in 95, there was conventional cotton, there was organic cotton, and there was transitional cotton. You know, transitional cotton was organic on its way to being organic. And I feel like that's what's happening. So, David, you know, what do you think it's going to take to to have sustainability be a little bit more mainstream? Let's say that again, Neil. David, what do you think it's going to take to, to have sustainability be, be a little bit more scalable and um, mainstream? Is it consumer pressure? Is it legislation? Or is it a combination of, of, of the two? I have uh, kind of two theories about this. I, I do agree um, that there's a tsunami of coming with the millennial arriving with dollars in their pocket to spend. And they're much more interested in understanding the authenticity of a claim. Uh, and they're much more interested in, uh, in environmental efforts, uh, more conscious about the planet than the previous um, generation. Um, so this is a gradual changeover of, uh, of mindset. Um, and we definitely, I definitely feel from year to year, there's more talk, uh, there's more demand from these consumers. You must remember they're quite savvy. They're all can go on the internet. They have a nose for BS. Uh, so they'll see through claims that aren't real. And, uh, so I think the demand, uh, will come from there. I think that the major brands and retailers are pacing their sustainability and traceability efforts on this uh, voice. And as this voice gets louder, so I believe most major retailers, brands and manufacturers will start to hear the voice and start to do the needful. Uh, the second part that I see happening is there might be a seismic event uh, in that that some um, practices that uh, – Andrew and I know are going on in the world, uh, you know, in the other hundreds of millions of genes that are made or hundreds of millions of sheets that are made. Uh, there, is a, there, are, there are dark secrets in our industry. Um, and the, the, these dark secrets have been covered uh, to a large extent by certifiers. Uh, I have this kind of theory that we live in a world of paper certification so what actually happens is 
this authority or that organic union or this particular um, country's cotton board uh, tend to hand out certificates a little bit too easily and then don't check downstream to make sure that the purity of the content uh, and, uh, is, is real. So we find that smart manufacturers or unscrupulously smart manufacturers take advantage of the banner, the cover, uh, that uh, that the that some authorities are giving them, and that dilutes the purity, dilutes the claim, and so there could be a seismic event where um, some of this is uncovered, uh, which would bring legislation, uh, which would bring a lot of press. We don't see a lot of press on this issue, as you uh, as you know, um, Eddie. It's kind of uh, it doesn't get to the front pages a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, we had an event in the Egyptian cotton story in our home textiles a couple of years ago that uh, was pretty vocal, but then things kind of died down after that. Mm-hmm. Um, I honestly believe the event's going to be around organic cotton. There seems to be more organic, low-priced organic cotton products in the market than could possibly be grown. As a person now who's this involved with growers, and I know what it takes to grow an organic crop, what it does to yield, what it means not to use herbicides, or pesticides, what it means to allow allow land to become organic. Um, it just doesn't seem to me possible that uh, that this much organic cotton is out there at prices that are so similar to conventional cotton. So I could see I could see something happening where the lid might get blown off that claim, and everybody will uh, be scrambling to find solutions. So I think a key word that 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 you're hinting on right here is accountability. And, you know, Andrew, I know in offline conversations that we've had, you said, you know, people really, you know, they don't know about the products they wear or maybe the food they eat because there really is no accountability. What is it going to hold? What is it going to take to hold companies accountable for their product claims? Well, um, I think at the end of the day, um, the more and more testing that goes on and the more and more information that goes out is going to actually set standards for other companies. I mean, as companies like Everlane do what they're doing, it's holding other companies in, in, in um, an example of what they're not doing. So I just think all of this stuff is, is, is going to work its way out. So do you think there, the programs like BCI Cotton or GOTS and Textile Exchange and other programs like this are, are useful or are there advantages to, to these organizations? Are there disadvantages? Oh, man. You asked me that question in advance, and I, I thought about that question, and I thought, well, I can't review those like movies. I mean, every one of those entities has some purpose, and I think that they're all important. But, if, but at the end of the day, it's up to each brand to have somebody in their company, either an appointed sustainable officer or somebody at management, who really studies what the company's values are. And each company has to have its own perspective of what they plan to do and what their commitment to the environment is. And they need to share it with their with their customers. I think that makes a lot of sense. So let's pivot a little bit to transparency. Um, David, um, do you have an opinion uh, as to which technology, whether it be blockchain, and I know that's still at its early stages, or RFID or molecular tagging, or perhaps something else, which will ultimately become the industry standard? Um, so obviously I bias on this issue because we picked a, a, a route. Um, we did this in 2014. 
where we were faced with our own um, moment where we had to decide as a company what we were going to do, how responsible we're going to be, uh, what our ethos was as a company, uh, and how um, serious we wanted to be about ensuring that claims were verified. Um, we obviously picked the molecular tagging route. Uh, we liked it a lot because it put a basically a small certificate on a molecule on the product itself. There seems to be something very amazing about actually having the product carry uh, the certification with it uh, that can never be separated from it. Uh, it's a radical, um, it's a radical uh, route to go. Um, it needed a lot of setup, a lot of uh, time, a lot of investment. Uh, but it's paid off, as I said to you before, very heavily for us. These other, you know, the other things that are out there, and uh, I was fortunate enough to be on the traceability panel at the latest um, BCI conference in Brussels a few weeks ago, and I sat on the panel with people who are uh, instituting blockchain, people who are using RFID uh, and other ways. They... You know, I'm, I'm very supportive of any company who does anything to do with traceability because um, I see these as, as, as a, a strong movement towards accountability. Uh, the problem is, uh, let's just take blockchain, for instance, is it's kind of rubbish in, rubbish out. It's like, what are you putting? Blockchain is, a let's just say, an, un, uh, an unerasable ledger. So it, it's open and democratic from that perspective. But somebody has to put some information into that blockchain. So if your information uh, input is wrong, then you're not really doing anything. RFID tags are being used extensively with certain cotton manufacturers on bales. Uh, but when the bale shroud gets thrown off, so the RFID tag gets thrown with it. So then where do you go from there? So, um, so I've been watching the space. Uh, there seems to be some very interesting work being done now in cotton, at least, on uh, isotope. Uh, uh, I, know, research. I know I'm kind of putting you on the spot for a second, but I know you, you're you using molecular tagging in your supply chain. Can you tell us what company you're partnering with to, to execute this? Yes. So um, our technology partner is a, is a technology company out of Long Island, New York, called Applied DNA Sciences, uh, who have been, who, 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 who you know well. Uh, our... Uh, our route to market has extensively been through a rather large deal that we did with Bed Bath and Beyond. Um, uh, this made us uh, the world's single largest user of verified PEMA. Um, so we scaled pretty quickly because we got um, a large retailer to understand what we were doing and believe in it enough to move an entire supply chain onto a system. Um, so this has been going on since 2014. We're in our fourth year. We feel very secure in what we're doing. We have about 11,000 DNA tests now in the archive. It's forensic. So it's pretty powerful stuff. And we're starting now um, through um, a, 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 a careful reach out to try and find uh, apparel partners who might be interested in joining forces with us uh, obviously conditional to them accepting uh, quite a rigorous protocol um, to see whether we want to now start to carefully proliferate 
this platform outwardly. Um, so that's where we stand at the moment. So again, I want to kind of just pivot the conversation for a second. Um, you know, I want to go back to the food industry. It's done a really good job of raising consumer awareness and, and they compare, I mean, all you have to do is walk through a whole foods, whole foods and whatnot. And you can see that people are willing to pay a higher price for sustainable products, organic products. Maybe it's because, um, we're putting these products inside our body. Um, but, but Andrew, what can the apparel, textile, footwear industry do to follow in the footsteps of the food industry to kind of create this consumer awareness and make them understand that sustainability is not a nice to have, it is a need to have? Well, I think we're really different than the food industry because one is consumption and one's not. So, for example, the role that organic plays in, in digestibles is a, is a different role than it plays in something you wear or something you use on your couch. So I think that the, the need for that organic product, which is what Whole Foods is about organic. So I think that's a really huge difference. I think that what's going on is that is that companies have to stand for something. And I keep repeating the same thing. I mean, as a consumer, when you buy something, you have to make a decision on what you think of that company. Or if you think of anything about that company, because maybe you don't, maybe you just think about them because they're cheap or because they carry a certain brand that you like. But if, if the company wants to build value, long-term value with their consumers, they're going to have to actually do something. And designing and being cheap is not it. That's not the only thing that works. So, so David has seen a lot of success. Obviously, he gave the example of Bed Bath & Beyond and being able to trace that using applied DNA. Uh, in the denim space, are you seeing more of a demand for um, sustainable denim fabrics, sustainable garments? Um, well, sustainability, sustainability comes from many, many different things. The first thing is fibers. Which fibers do you use? So, yeah, I mean, are people stopping to use rayon, which is really unsustainable? Totally. Are people moving to recycle polyester instead of polyester? Totally. Is Tencel doing well? Amazingly well. Is sustainable cotton growing? I think BCI this year reached like 30% market share. So, yeah, I think that the growth in fibers is really growing. Then you could talk about wet processing. So today, lasers and ozone, you know, you know that technology. That technology is now 25% of the global market for genes. It's growing like crazy. So, yeah, I think that the, um, that the, the, the elements of what goes into a gene are being changed constantly and for the better. And consumers are being told what's going on. Even tar Target has a whole sustainable mission where every, every product they sell has to have a sustainable feature. That's a big undertaking. Mm -hmm. Massive undertaking. About, you know, uh, you know, another pressure that the supply chain has, Andrew, is, is is speed to market. And we're getting a lot of pressure to turn goods around quicker, reduce inventory liability, and replenish, replenish, replenish. Is it there's a there's a man for you know more designs, you know, smaller skew, you know, le more SKUs, less MOQs. Uh, you know, is is that a hindrance to having a sustainable supply chain or is that just an excuse? I think it's funny because that's sort of like somebody offering you a $200,000 Rolex for 300 bucks. If you've got super fast delivery and unlimited capacity to produce small minimums and do whatever anyone needs, then you're obviously it's just It's just impossible. So when people get really great deliveries and really great prices, the first thing you know is that there's something wrong. Because a factory 
has a fixed cost and has a fixed delivery schedule, like a hotel. If you're busy, you can't get any more rooms. And if you can take unlimited amount of rooms, that means you're booking people in other hotels. So from my perspective, there is a general speed of how things are produced. That is the speed it takes. And if someone's getting deliveries that are faster than that speed, that basically indicates there's something funny going on. And they're cool with it. I completely agree. So, David, Andrew, I really want to thank you for your time today. Um, For the audience out there, if they want to get in touch with you, uh, I'm sure we could continue this conversation for hours. And this is not the, the, the last time Hopefully, we'll all be able to speak on this matter um, because it's an evolving process. And and as as both of you have mentioned, more and more brands are starting to partake in this, and we're seeing success. Whether it's David with you and Bad Bath and Beyond, or it's companies like Everlane, who in a short period of time have really grown uh, to be a quite quite a substantial company, and their and their complete um, ability to expose their entire entire supply chain and put it out there for the world to see. Is, is not only brave, but it's, it's, it's honest. And I think they're, the millennial consumer really appreciates that and respects that. Um, but, but if there's anyone that wants to get in touch with either of you, what's, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, so um, the best way to, to contact us is actually um, to co- uh, contact me directly. I'm the one that's, um, that's uh, uh, running uh, the onboarding of the new initiatives um, on, on the DNA tagged platforms. And um, I'll share my details with you, Eddie. You can share them online with this podcast. Great. And uh, Andrew? Um, anyone can reach me at andrew at kingpinshow.com. Great. Um, David, Andrew, I want to thank you again for your time. This has uh, been really insightful. And I uh, hope to speak to you uh, both again really soon. Take care. Thanks for listening. To hear more insightful conversations like this, be sure to subscribe to Sourcing Journal Radio on Apple iTunes, Google Play, and tune in. Also get your ticket now to the Sourcing Journal Summit in New York on October 11th. We'll be bringing together a slate of provocative thought leaders to discuss the challenges that face the industry as we move forward towards Sourcing 5.0. Hear from Rick Darling, Executive Director of Lee and Fung's LF Americas. Steve Lamar, Executive Vice President of the American Apparel and Footwear Association. Karen Moon, CEO and co-founder of Trendalytics. Isaac Korn, Director of Innovation and Automation for Perry Ellis. And many more as we discuss the impact of the trade war, the ongoing retail recovery, and how technology is transforming retail. Visit our site, sourcingjournal.com, for more details.